Howdy. This is the MMA podcast. It's me, Ed Gallo, your co-host, with my other co-host, Sriram. What's up? Hello. How you feeling? Um, well, I mean, last event was pretty fun, so that's good. The event before that was also not bad, and the event before that made me very, very sad, but uh, there was, you know, overall a fun week. Yeah, we're riding a high right now, because uh, if you watch the UFC 257 prediction panel or listen to it, uh, that kind of took the place of our podcast last week, just because it was the same exact thing we would have talked about, so it's kind of overkill. Um <laughs> And, you know, we, we can only shamelessly plug Conor McGregor content so much, you know, to, to get views. We did two breakdown videos and a panel. Uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. And, and an article. So <laughs> it's too much. And a post-fight article. Uh, so another podcast would have been a, a, a bit, a bit heavy-handed. Uh, yeah, a little shameless. So we have a little bit of shame. But, yeah, we're, we're definitely riding high. So if you watch the panel, listen to the panel, you would know that Sriram and I uh, we're the only ones who officially went on record from our staff to pick Dustin Poirier, and uh, I'm the only one from our staff who officially went on record to pick Michael Chandler. So we are both big brain smarty pantses, and on top of that, we picked the guy we want to win as well. So we are both happy that he won and that we were right about him winning. Yes, this is what MMA is all about. The rare happiness you get in between picking all the fighters you want to win who never ever do. Sometimes they deliver yeah, it, it's all, it all builds up to these moments, just all the, the pain week after week of being wrong or being disappointed or being sad. Uh, the, the times when you're right and things work out, uh, honestly, it kind of does make it worth it because you forget how that feels. You're like, oh, this is, this is the best. Vindication. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, vindication, like living vicariously. And also, like, just every time I read more and more about, like, people post things about Conor McGregor and, like, the accounts of his victims, of his crimes, uh, it's just like, oh, my God, this guy's a monster. Um, and humble Conor was really getting on my nerves all week. Like, it's it's good. It's a good thing to do from him. But it's just, like, yeah. he's, re- he's trying to rehabilitate his image, and it's, like, it's... It's not really going to help until he actually does anything to fix yeah. what he's done. Yeah, he should probably be in jail. So yeah. <laughs> that it just felt nice to see. Not first of all, he didn't even show up looking bad. That wasn't like he. Oh, that's what people are saying. They're making excuses for him. But it's not like he showed up and looked old. And Dustin just you know destroyed an old Connor. Like it was a tough fight, and he got through it, and he figured it out, and he looked amazing, and he put him out cold, cold sleep, which some people are debating, which is interesting. Um, but he put him out like twice <laughs> yeah it was like a romero rockhold thing where he was kind of alive after the first knockdown and he's got put all the way out when he was on his butt so yeah the uh his image really took a took a major hit which is another victory in its own way so if you're a connor fan listening to this i don't even dislike him as a fighter i i, I like him a decent amount as a fighter he's just you know a, a bad person and dustin poirier for mma and objectively is a really really good person so that never happens <laughs> but the good guy wins so enjoy it and, and let us enjoy it so yeah i'm hyped but uh let's let's do analysis let's do uh, the thing that the people actually care about not our happiness no one cares about that <laughs> um let, let's talk game plans so like i said people were saying that conor mcgregor uh you know showed up bad or showed up you know, with a stupid game plan or whatever let's start with him so what were you seeing from him and we watched it together what were you seeing from him in, in the first round how how was he approaching this fight 
Right. So I think McGregor kind of came out and tried to do what he did against Cerrone, like really early, just blast him out. But he figured out pretty quickly that the southpaw southpaw was going to keep him from just throwing his left hand out there and not getting obstructed by the lead shoulder. So as the first round developed, it kind of turned into a very uh, a lead hand heavy performance for McGregor standards and, you know, just generally where uh, he was using the jab to draw out um, Poirier's counters or draw up his guard and hit his body at least once. And uh, it was actually a pretty sharp performance from McGregor early. I know a lot of people were like, oh, he's not going in out as much, or he's not like bouncy, or he's not as bladed. I think all of those were kind of adjustments for another southpaw opponent who's about as big as he is, because he's not going to just, you know, um, bounce in and out and get Poirier to just like run forward at him to cover the distance. Like, you know, he's not going to do that in terms of finding the left hand through the open side and uh, just bouncing in and out to set that up. So... He fought a good fight in terms of that, and honestly, I was really impressed by how he was able to throw away his left hand a couple times uh, to set up that lead uppercut, both in the first and early in the second. It, was, it wasn't it was a performance where I think McGregor came in expecting it to be particularly difficult. I think he really did think that he was going to bang Poirier out early, but Poirier's durability and his uh, better defense kind of carried him through that early surge. And of course, the wrestling. We saw uh, McGregor's get-up game and his clinch. Uh, look significantly better than his uh, takedown defense, but it uh, it was overall a, a pretty strong all round performance from McGregor. I think just something that would have worked on fighters who weren't Dustin Poirier. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, even and it, it it did work, but it didn't it didn't yeah. win him the fight. It didn't finish him. It was working. it halfway worked. It was going it was going pretty well. Um, and yeah, I, I think uh, the closed stance nature of the matchup uh, that's what probably threw a lot of people. Uh, and, and you talk about it like not not doing in out, not doing as bouncy things, you know, fighting a little differently. I think a lot of it, yeah, a lot of it does have to do with the stance matchup because when you're in open stance, obviously it favors your your rear hand and your rear leg, and uh, you know it's there's bigger movements to get those weapons to work. Um, they're more effective. It's easier to get them off. It's still it, you know you cover more distance on them. Like it's it's just a different kind of game. Whereas if you're you know, paying more attention with your lead hand and you have more of a guard to get behind, uh, which is definitely tougher in open stance, uh, you can fight a little differently. And for Connor, for someone who likes to, you know, wants to be able to conserve energy, it kind of was good for him, you know, to be able to have that close stance and work his jab a lot more and, uh, you know, def- defend a little differently. And that also helped out Dustin Poirier a decent amount, I think, because, um, you know, his high guard has been part of his game for a long time but it's really evolved a decent amount in an open stance i don't think it would have been as much of a factor but here like you said he'd get behind his lead shoulder and uh you know the distancing was a little easier to manage like you saw him uh rocking back out of the way once he figured out what the length was on on the one two um he, he was able to get out of there a decent amount but you know draw it out with his lead hand anticipate it get out of the way and start finding that check hook counter which was you know one of the biggest stories of the fight um, people also talking a lot about the calf kicks and, you know, the calf kicks are an, an annoying thing to me just because, um, they helped. They were part of the game plan for sure. He was landing them. It was, it was going well. It definitely contributed to the win. No doubt about it. And, uh, the, the stance matchup also did that because, you know, if you're an open stance, kicking the calf isn't quite as effective because usually the muscle, the muscle is on that side. You're hitting like the squishy part. Uh, rather than like the part that's like directly on your bone, like the thinner part of your leg. Um, so open stance, you know, outside low kicks always better in my opinion. 
uh, just they're more available. It's easier to hit the part that you actually want to hurt. And uh, yeah, just, just having the lane for that was helpful. And Connor, it's just annoying to me that people are like, oh, it's the calf kicks specifically. And he could have low kicked them normally. And I think it would have yeah. worked uh, about as well just because Connor has never been great with low kicking um like dennis siever i think knocked him down with a low kick at one point <laughs> eddie alvarez did too eddie alvarez kicked him for free a bunch of times you know i think maybe it landed weird once but it wasn't like connor checking which is his stance landed weird once and got him to stop kicking and then you know the demise came yeah like, you know, connor's never been a great low kick defender so it's not like the difference between a low kick and a calf kick is what did him in um and people like to point to like early in his career like when his first five fights or something like that he won a fight with a with a check um cool but but I those are not good kickers <laughs> so that that kind of rubs me the wrong way just because it, it discredits uh all the rest of the good things that happened from a from a boxing standpoint with Justin Poirier so uh like, like we said pre-fight we were expecting Connor to either uh keep distance and kick to force Poi to try to close the distance and then counter him, or he was going to pressure him and you know try to tee off on him around his guard. And he did pressure him, and Dustin did concede that space, which is what we thought, um, just because defensive ring craft is not his forte. And he kind of likes it. <laughs> He's like, all right, yeah, come here. Uh, get into my range so I can try to counter you. Um, and that's what worked for him. But, you know, it's still scary, scary stuff to put yourself near the cage like that. Um, so... Back, back to you, Shrew. Um, tell me more about how that performance worked for Dustin Poirier, because you, you wrote all about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the annoying thing about the calf kicks, I think, is that Poirier was able to leg kick McGregor several... This is something that the heavy hands people pointed out, is that Poirier was able to get leg kicks for free against McGregor the first time. And that didn't really win him the fight, because Poirier, uh, or McGregor rather was able to just close distance very easily behind his own lead hand and just kind of hit Poirier whenever he wanted to. And that's kind of the change that Poirier was able to do here. Um, the compressed distance in the closed stance worked better for Poirier than it did the first time because his defense looked way better. As we mentioned before, uh, he got behind his lead shoulder a lot. Uh, he was able to layer that with a slip. So when um, when McGregor was throwing his one-twos, there was this one really nice sequence from both. Like It was right at the end of the fight where uh, McGregor threw like three one-twos and Poirier just reliably getting, like, slipping the, the first shot and getting behind his shoulder on the second. And on the last one, uh, McGregor cut this nice little angle where he was able to draw out the slip from Poirier, uh, step inside his lead shoulder, like, take a little lateral step and blast him with the left hand. So it didn't work foolproof. Uh, it wasn't foolproof, rather, from Poirier, but it was a very defensively aware performance from him. And I think the most important thing that uh, worried a lot of us was that Poirier couldn't really hit on the lead without getting out of his stance. Uh -huh. And even if he had the plan to not get out of his stance, it would be something where, like, he's going to have these moments where he's going to step out of his stance, like, t to buy space or just because he's Dustin Poirier and that's the kind of thing that he does being Dustin Poirier. So the fact that the first one linked into his level change was absolutely brilliant. Like, even if he didn't get the takedown, and he probably shouldn't have gotten that takedown, it was a, it was a fantastic game plan in terms of... Uh, forcing McGregor to give a little bit of ground instead of just planting and countering straight every time Poirier took a step forward. So two times he changed levels on that, and the, the next couple times he shifted, McGregor was just holding back a little bit. So that protected him there, and the rest was just that uh, right check hook, which kind of covered his defensive ring craft issues as well. If you notice 
Uh, McGregor didn't really have a ton of success walking in on Poirier when he was stuck up against the fence because mm-hmm. that right hook was uh, really limiting his ability to um, to step in and flurry. So that, I think, did a lot of the heavy lifting. The jab uh, kind of stopped a couple of McGregor's step forward and played off the right hook. Uh, the calf kicks, it was mostly a thing where once McGregor was forced to stand at range and not just you know push Poirier back and bully him at will, the calf kicks did more damage than the first time. But also, like, I feel like a lot of the mechanical advantage of the calf kick are ruled out by anyone who's halfway decent at defending kicks. Mm. So at that point, the thigh kick and the calf kick are kind of synonymous. It's just that one's better against better kick defenders, and that's not the calf kick. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was a very shrewd performance from Dustin Poirier. For sure. Something I was just thinking about that we talked about when it was happening during the commentary was were those clinch positions. Uh, do you remember that video that's being shared around of a guy on TikTok who's like, here are some things that Conor McGregor should have done differently if he wanted to win the fight. And the last one is uh, more takedowns. <laughs> <laughs> Conor McGregor should have shot more takedowns. And everyone's clowning him because, you know, that's not what he does anymore. Yeah. Although he used to do that. Um, remember how he took down Max Holloway? Oh, uh, yeah. Down, uh, I don't know if he took down Dennis Eber, but he definitely top-gamed him. Yeah, Diego Brandau, he lat-dropped him. Uh, so he actually used to have some offensive wrestling in his game. So that's my first part of that sentence. Uh, and the second part is that uh, when they were against the cage, he was doing the shoulder bumps, and everyone's like, that's not very good offense. I'm like, it's not very good offense, but it does serve a purpose that we talked about when it was happening that straightens him up. And you know, theoretically, you should be able to get head position underneath Dustin Poirier on the fence by bumping him up at, into his, you know, out of his stance like that. So... It, it does serve the purpose of holding him in, against the cage, which I thought was good. You remarked that you thought the cage work was good. I thought so, too. Um, he was definitely getting, like, underhooks and wrists and leaning into him hard and, you know, distributing his weight well, and uh, the shoulder bumps worked well for that. But honestly, it's something John Jones does a lot. You, you can watch it against, like, Anthony Smith, for example. Shoulder bump to straighten him up, and you have the underhook and, uh, and wrist. And if they don't have, like, a hard wizard on your, uh, on your underhook side... You could drop into a double straight off of that. And I know Conor McGregor is not a wrestler, but it's not actually not that crazy to suggest that he could have taken him down. Um, it was kind of there. But it's just, <laughs> it's just a funny thing to think about that he could have done it. Um, but no, I'm not saying that that guy is smart or correct. Uh, I just wanted to point out when it was happening, like, oh, that's a good takedown setup, but that's probably not why he was doing it. Uh, but yeah, there were, there were plenty of nice things in that fight that Conor did. Um, the, the takedown defense in the beginning was not nice. I think, um, it's two things. I think it's, no, it's, it's three things more so. One, he's just not that good of a wrestler. Everyone knows that. Um, hmm. <laughs> two, I think that he, uh, he specifically has a problem with cross-facing. He does not use cross-facing as a defensive tool. And, like, when someone's, like, shooting straight at you on a double like that, all you really need to do is get their head out of position if they're that high, you know, on your hips and that high on your legs. And like not really level changing that much, and they're just driving you straight back. If you get their head offline, they have no driving power anymore. They don't have anything to push you back with. Um, so that's one reason. Um, and you can start to you know get your hips back and defend more. Um, but also, his defense was basically just holding. He didn't really do anything. He was just kind of trying to trying to balance the BJ Penn defense. And uh, so I think that that screwed him up. But also, I think that the attempt was just kind of terrible. And uh, Connor was like, okay. This is nothing, and he was just expecting him to push him back to the fence and then maybe work there. Um, but then he uh, he redirected and hit that uh, like outside trip, like dropping finish to the hip, which Zach Makovsky does not like. 
Shout out Zach <laughs> Mikowski for cringing every time someone falls to their hip on a takedown finish. Uh, so yeah, it, w- it wasn't like good of an attempt. I don't think he was expecting him to finish that way. Um, so he probably would have tried a little harder <laughs> if he knew what he was doing. But yeah, that wasn't. I don't really like to talk about that just because it was bad on both parts. Um, and you could actually see when they got to the cage. Dustin was trying to uh, hit that leg mount and, and wrist ride like he was against uh, Dan Hooker. Um, he got pretty good at that. But it just goes to show you that Connor is actually a better defensive grappler than Dan Hooker because it didn't work on him. <laughs> but, yeah, I think um, I think Connor McGregor showed up pretty well. Uh, probably about as good as... People are going to say he wasn't as good as the Alvarez fight, but I think that was pretty much the same guy as the Alvarez fight I didn't really see a big difference that's the stance matchup and maybe he's like a little slower and maybe he got tired faster than he would have but also Dustin Poirier like once he got the advantages that he had in that fight that Shiram talked about it was always going to go downhill from there so it was really just a matter of time um it just happened a lot faster than I expected and maybe that's where the calf kicks kicks contribute um oh that's one more thing I didn't like that um he was catching them and doing nothing with it do you notice that? Yeah, at one point he just kind of decided to catch all of them. And it works because Poirier is like, he's kind of a crafty kicker in terms of like, he was able to kick and then right hook off it a couple times. But just as like a mechanical kicker, Poirier is just not very good at it at all because of his hips. Like it might just be that he's not good at kicking just generally, even with good hips, but with his bad hips, it's even worse. So at one point Connor was just like, okay, I see these kicks. I'm just going to catch them all because they're so slow and bad. And then he just pushes him back to the fence and is just completely unable to do anything with them. So it was pretty funny. Like, I think the best response Connor had to the leg kick at one point was he, he was able to step in with the left hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then he got right hooked, but it wasn't like a clean right hook. Poirier, like, kind of cuffed him with it with his palm. Yeah. But uh, that might have kind of dissuaded him a little bit more. I think it just goes to show. It really reminds me of the second Diaz fight. Well, you know, the first one a little bit as well. But the Diaz fights are where you can see, like, him having to adjust like something stops working or he can't do the same thing anymore. Um, like we talked about Dustin figuring out, you know, figuring out his counters and figuring out how to, you know, neutralize a little bit Connor's offense. Uh, but also the calf kicks might've compounded things and made him a little, a little more urgent. I think that might've um, been the catalyst for what made him shift into, Oh, I need to do something different mode. And he couldn't really figure out what that was. And if you watch the Diaz fights, he's not a quick adjuster. It takes some time. So that first Diaz fight, he sold out completely on trying to finish him early because he was hitting him with everything. And he's like, oh, this is going to be easy. And then he got tired. And then he started <laughs> getting hit and he freaked out. The second fight, it went almost exactly the same way pretty early on, except Connor was low kicking him. So he's doing some attritional work. But again, he got tired of beating him up. And Nate started to keep coming at him and, and turn the pressure up. And for a, a while in that fight, he just kind of let it happen to him. And just tried to figure out how to deal with it and, you know, shell up and be defensive. And that's exactly what he did against Dustin Poirier, and that's why he got finished. So it's not that different. It's not, It's really not a new <laughs> response. Um, but you can definitely say that the calf kicks were what um, spurred that on that made him think, oh, I, um, I need to do something else. And, you know, makes it harder to move around, obviously. And, uh, yeah, his. but when he gets tired, his ring craft is not, not great. Um, and people have been posting the clip of uh, of him walking and jogging away from the cage and Diaz walking 
perpend like parallel to him like, <laughs> he walked in like a different direction like even when he like came back to the center like diaz walked in a different way to let him get the distance again it was so stupid um it's really bad, bad ring crafts and a lot of ring craft in a lot of his fights um i think that was always there and we talked about a pre-fight and uh yeah we uh we're smart we're very smart very. And correct and uh that transitions into another fight that we were smart and correct about well, me, I was smart and correct about it. Uh, Michael Chandler versus Dan Hooker. And it's not fair, really, for me to gloat about it because did Dan Hooker do anything? He he kicked a little bit. I remember that. Uh-huh. Um, and I think I was smart, but mostly to defer to you because I knew that you were smart. I didn't actually make a pick. but I, I did on the panel, but I didn't on the, the piece. I was just like, whatever Edge says. Yeah. yeah, Hooker didn't really do that much, but it was it was a pretty educated fight from Chandler. Um, Hooker was just doing his thing that he did against Felder, where he like f- circles in one direction the entire fight, and Felder, being Felder, couldn't really do anything about it whatsoever because he is Felder. But uh, Chandler figured it out, pushed him in that direction with the straight right to the body a couple times, and then just put the left hook behind it to, to kill him. Yeah, uh, I talked about the uh, the straight right to the body. As a setup for Michael Chandler, he he definitely understands conceptually uh, how that works as a level changing setup for him. I don't think I've seen him come back up with a left hook like that before, uh, but like you said, it's it's been a thing in Hooker fights in the past where he circles out hard after he hits the cage, which you know you should. Um, that's decent ring craft, but you know not with your hands down <laughs> like that. Probably with Dan Hooker's defense, generally it's just risky. Yeah, he usually can take a lot of punishment so he doesn't have things super tight defensively but yeah i totally expected hooker to knee him for that which is why i talked about pre-fight and like chandler really likes his level changing setups he, he does not faint them he just hits it and hits it and hits it until uh he feels like there's a reaction then he can come back up uh which is exactly what happened but i just thought okay if he's gonna do that over and over again surely dan hooker <laughs> who is a little bit known for his knees will throw a knee and uh, I'm going to have to, well, I should have to, but I'm probably not going to. What I would do if I really wanted to know is go watch the fights where he actually did that and see how much it took. And then maybe watch some other fights where he didn't do that. And if there was still the stimulus and maybe we just overrated him as, as a counter knee fighter. Because, I mean, how many times does he really hit them in open space like that? It was Ross Pearson. Uh, did he fight Jim Miller? Uh, Jim Miller was pretty much against the fence. I think that's one thing that I brought up before the fight in terms of the knees is that um, Hooker, he hit that. Uh, so I think the Ross Pearson one was in like the third round and Pearson is like the most kickable man alive, especially yeah. when you like start putting them together with their punches. And to his credit, that's one thing Hooker did really well in that fight is that he'd draw out uh, Pearson's slips with his jab or a feint and then just kick him as soon as he moved. But in terms of like the knees that he's hit on better competition than like old Ross Pearson... It's Jim Miller who he like he he set it up with the right hand he like uh, fainted the right strike and then put the knee behind it as Miller ducked in but it was against the fence. Um, he did it to Gilbert Burns but also Gilbert Burns was like one pretty much hurt at that point and two it was like a stepping knee up against the fence so that wasn't a counter knee and three against Poirier a couple times but again that was like trying to enter in on the in fight against Poirier with with the knee and even that got caught once I think so. Mm-hmm. I think Hooker is like, he's not a shabbly. He's definitely not a shabbly. But, um, I mean, he has a decent knee. He knows how to use it. But I think it's a lot better when he is uh, moving forward and he has his opponent against the fence. 
You should say who Shabli is. Not everyone's going to know who that is. <laughs> you should know who it is. If you don't know who Shabli is, then we don't respect you. No, uh, he's, um, <laughs> he's, uh, he used to be ACA. I don't know whether he's still there anymore. ACA, ACB. Uh, he's very good. He's a fantastic counterpuncher. Hits really cool knees on the counter and on the lead. Um, great pressure fighter. I think Ryan's going to come out with a couple um, oh, yeah. videos about him soon-ish on Ryan standards. And Danny has a, uh, a, a an article titled Lessons to Learn about uh, Alexander Shabli. And he's just uh, a, fa a fantastic striker for MMA and uh, really good counters and another great knee fighter. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's been training at ATT recently and we, we privately have been crediting him for, uh, for Poirier's win because he, <laughs> you know, that's where we think he learned how to prepare for those counters. Yeah, I think I scored the, sh the Vartanian fight for him, actually. I don't remember. I haven't watched it in a bit. That, uh, He's one of the best that, that should speak for itself. For sure. Yeah. Cool. But yeah, the Chandler fight, I don't think there's a ton to take away from it, just that Chandler is still very athletic and does the things that he does, and they work if you let him do it to you. So I uh, on my podcast, the wrestling podcast, uh, which came out yesterday, uh, I talked about how I think he matches up against the top three. That's a big conversation. Let's not have it right now. Uh, cause we've got lots of other stuff to talk about. Uh, so cool. That card, that card was not great. <laughs> um, there was like <laughs> the, well. the Mahmoud Moradov fight, um, where him and Andrew Sanchez, like Andrew Sanchez gave him like a pretty decent go at, by, by being, you know, fairly functional as a striker, which is kind of came out of nowhere. Right. He wasn't like that before. Someone. <laughs> I don't want to actually talk about it, but just, you know, a little credit there. The fight was semi-interesting, but Muradov didn't really change his approach that much. He just got closer and closer to doing the thing that he was trying to do. Uh, and then he swarmed him once he had him hurt. Uh, but Muradov, for middleweight, seems like he'll be in the top 10 pretty soon. Which, you know, for middleweight, it's not a huge no, <laughs> But, yeah. Uh, Joanne Collarwood beat up Jessica I. That was good. Uh, Marina Rodriguez counter-punched Amanda Hibas, and... Amanda Hebos has always been pretty aggressive and reckless on the lead and, like, not super great mechanically. But I think she looked a little bit better and still got counterpunched. So Marina Rodriguez is a pretty solid striker for a 115, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't really paying attention to her boxing before this, but she does some really nice, like, pressure kneeing things where she uh, knees into the into the clinch and does some fun clinch things. Uh, I think I scored the... Um, what was it, Esparza? It might have been Esparza. Esparza robs everybody, but there was a fight that she had in, uh, no, I think it was Calvillo, the draw that she had, where uh, she got 10-8 on the ground in the third round, but then the judges did not see that she got a 10-8 on the feet in, like, the first round. Uh -huh. So, uh, yeah, she's pretty fun. She's not, like, I'm not sure she's elite in a division where, like, everyone's going to try to take you down eventually, just as, like, a function of their process, except for maybe, like, Rose and JJ. But, you know, it's uh, she's a fun contender to watch. Yeah, and Ryan Ryan actually had pretty nice things to say about her. So if, if Ryan's saying good things about a women's MMA fighter, you know uh, that they have they're showing something pretty serious. Um, yeah, on the undercard below that, uh, Armand Sarukian had a, a a pretty solid performance. He, he had a little bit of trouble with Matt Frivola, and I uh, I covered that in my podcast as well. So I need to go into it, but Sarukian's still winning, um, and I I think he looks pretty promising as as a grappler for the division. So I'm looking forward to future matchups for him. Uh, Brad Tavares, <laughs> he, uh, he, he won the fight like he should have. He definitely should have won that fight, and uh, his wrestling looked pretty good in, in like, you know, competency terms. He, he's a good wrestler. He has good attributes for wrestling. He's very flexible. He has good hips, uh, good, you know, reflexes overall. 
but I, I did talk about this in my podcast. It was annoying me a little bit that people were saying he's a good anti-wrestler and they were going a little, you know, hyperbolic with it as well. And just, I said it on my podcast, but I just want to put it out here as well, just for clarification. Anti-wrestling is about strike selection and ring craft. It's not actually about wrestling so if someone's a good defensive wrestler you just call them the good defensive wrestler but if they're good at not being wrestled at all like not having to be a good defensive wrestler that's anti-wrestling aldo is both uh brad tavares is one of those so uh he got put on the cage a lot he had to he had to defend a lot of wrestling because his ring craft wasn't good because his anti-wrestling strike selection wasn't that good so i wanted to put that out there Yeah, I mean, a ton of anti-wrestlers do tend to be good defensive wrestlers, but it yeah, tends to be, like, a process that they build. Like, they start with, I'm good at wrestling, and I don't want to be held down, and then they go into, I don't want to have to deal with this wrestling ever at all. Yeah, and it, it, it goes together, because if you're doing things that make it hard to wrestle you, even if they do get to your legs, it's usually not optimal, and you're in a better position to defend. And, you know, Aldo's the best example of it ever, where it's both. You know, it, even when people did, like, get the perfect setup on him, didn't work. It, but most of the time, they had a really hard time getting a, a decent shot on him. Um, and, and some of it's a bit, a bit about stance and, you know, forcing certain defense, uh, like chan- channeling people into certain defense, like hiding his hips. Uh, so they have to do singles and then just doing the single defense. Um, things things of that nature. So I'm not mad. I'm not mad at anyone who said he was an anti-wrestler, but just I want you to know that. He's just disappointed. I'm, uh, yeah, I just, I, I want, I want that clarification to be made because people have asked me about it four or five different times now for my podcast when I take questions about what anti wrestling is, and I answer it every time. And we're still doing this. I'm like, come on, listen up. So, <laughs> uh, other fights that matter, the first two fights. Uh, most sorry, Vloyev basically uh, had had a weird catch weight 150 fight with Nick Lentz, but uh. He won. He didn't. It didn't look like it was much trouble for him at all. Yeah, he got hit a couple times before he warmed up, but uh, after that, it wasn't particularly tough. Yeah, I broke that one down too. What did you think about uh, Albazi and, and Zhumagulov? Uh, I think so. Zhumagulov looked pretty interesting in the Paiva fight. I think I scored that for Paiva, but a lot of people did not. Uh, but Zhumagulov is—he's uh, like a, a bizarre sort of blitzer where he goes like body head a lot. Uh, uses the body to set up his shots. Does like the Frankie Edgar knee tap. Like I think he did that in both of his previous fights, where he uses the body jab and the jabbing entries to uh, try to enter in on that knee tap. But um, Albazi kind of just won with activity. He was able to force Jumagulov back to the fence, which is one way that Jumagulov has always kind of had trouble. Is that um, he was forced back to the fence, pressured pretty easily by Paiva as well, if I remember correctly. So. Uh, they were able to just, both guys were able to just draw his offense out, draw his blitzes and punish him for it. In the last round, Jumagulov just got grappled, I think. Albazi looks like a genuinely promising grappler. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, fun flyweight fight. I think both guys are probably top 15-ish. Although it's flyweight, so that might not actually mean anything whatsoever. But I like flyweight as a, as a worldwide weight class, and both guys are pretty solid in, in comparison. Um. Yeah, so that card was had had some good stuff here and there, and uh, some bad stuff more often. But, you know, the, the main event and co-main were pretty awesome, so we're not mad about it. Uh, also last week was uh, Chiesa versus Magni, a Wednesday night fight night, and uh, there are a few interesting things, but I think the most interesting thing is that Michael Chiesa is a highly ranked contender at welterweight because he beat Neil Magni. <laughs> 
that right? That's, I mean, it's kind of, I think the way it works is that beating Magni makes you, like, solid at welterweight, and losing to Magni just means that you're, like, completely hopeless moving forward. So, you know, like, RIP Anthony Rocco Martin, I guess, but Michael Chiesa got it done. Uh, I think the cardio is still kind of concerning, but not because of, like, his raw gas. Like, his raw gas tank isn't, like, the best, but also the way that Chiesa fights is, like, a lot of wide arcing around around the around the cage. Like, Neil Magny isn't a great pressure, and Chiesa probably could have just stepped in and wrestled him at any time, uh, being, like, the clearly better clinch wrestler going in and in the fight. But, uh, you know, he did a lot of just trotting around the fence squared up, which I think contributed to him being so gassed. But he was able to uh, get Magny down pretty reliably. And I think this kind of shows where Magny stand. I think we always kind of knew where Magny stood, but also it's like, you know... If guys who are bad in the clinch engage Magni in the clinch, they're going to have a pretty bad time. But if guys who are good in the clinch engage Magni in the clinch, he's probably, like, he's he's an active but not particularly deep clinch fighter. Yeah. I uh, The episode of my podcast, Wrestling from MMA podcast, before the last one, I did a, a commentary for that fight. And I don't regret it. <laughs> I don't regret watching it. It was uh, it was kind of interesting, just the, the specifics of some of those clinch situations they were in, like how the takedowns were happening. I don't know. There was some cool stuff going on. Um, but the thing that really struck me was that Neil Magny could not stop fighting like Neil Magny, so his own curse <laughs> worked against him. You know, people cannot stop clinching with Neil Magny, but Neil Magny can also not stop clinching with other people. Um, he didn't know how to fight in a way that didn't lead to him clinching with Chiesa. Um, and I thought that was pretty telling, just that he, you know, despite being well-rounded, despite having skills in a lot of different areas, he couldn't change his approach. Um, so that's what kind of makes someone one-dimensional, in my opinion, rather than the skill distribution, more about, like, tactical adaptation. He, he couldn't. Um, and I don't know if it was like a, he wasn't expecting it or he thought that things would be different once they clinched or, or what. Because he, he, pretty early on, he was trying to take Chiesa down as well. So I thought maybe that was his plan. Um, saying like, yeah, I'm going to end up in the clinch, but I'm going to take him down. Because, you know, he does that to people. Um, so maybe that was the idea. So I'm not sure what the plan was. But once it started going south, things you would want to see are, you know, let, let's let's call it, let's say it again, anti-wrestling, right? Uh, yeah. Level changing strikes, you know, hitting the body a little bit more. Um, you know, better ring craft off the back foot, uh, you know, hopefully counters, you know, more active jabbing. But basically, uh, it was the open stance matchup that really screwed him, I think, because Kesa just had to keep playing with that lead hand. And when he saw the rear hand coming, that's when he uh, level changed and tried to get in for his clinch entries. And even when his clinch entries weren't so deep, he was able to transition to positions where he was, uh, where he had techniques, where he had things he could use. And I broke that down pretty in depth before so i think it was actually a really smart fight from kiesa he's doing that thing where the grappler tried to learn striking didn't get very good at it and probably got a little worse at grappling because they were focusing on trying to learn the striking he said you know what i don't really need to get better at striking i should just learn what i need to learn um and focus on being a grappler and uh it's happened a bunch of times uh like uh M. Case is the most recent example. Ben Askren is an unsuccessful example. Um, Damian Maya is a successful example. Uh, he had that period where he thought he was more of a striker because he was having gaining confidence yeah, in stand up, but then he you know transitioned back and ended up being better. Uh, Ali Bagov, less a more obscure reference, but same thing where he was trying to strike more, and then when he focused his striking just to be set ups for his wrestling, he got better. 
Um, this, this is another example of that. So, I don't know, just, just an interesting note from that fight. I thought, uh, thought that was cool, but unfortunately, the best clinch wrestler in MMA is the champion of his weight class. So the strategy definitely has its limitations for, for this division. Yeah. I mean, there are a bunch of guys up at the top of welterweight who can make Kiesa struggle badly. Go ahead. So. Say it. Say Leon, Leon Edwards. <laughs> I mean, Leon Edwards, yeah, but Leon Edwards makes everyone struggle. Uh, Colby Covington probably, just as a function of being able to hang in the clinch. Like, I think Colby Covington's looked kind of worse lately, but also, like, he's still a very good wrestler, and he's probably not going to gas and just keep pushing against Kiesa until Kiesa gasses first, which is almost certain to happen in that fight. Uh, Kamar Usman, obviously, you mentioned that. Uh, Gilbert Burns is not great in the clinch. I think that's like a fight where Kiesa might do better to just not take him down. But uh, yeah, I mean, welterweight's a tough division to be clinch wrestling. Magni's kind of the ceiling for that. Uh, or I guess RDA, but not that version of RDA. Here's the thing about RDA. I know MMA math doesn't work but it kind of makes me think that Kiesa could beat Colby because RDA beat Colby in the clinch with his back Very on the true. cage, which is a hard thing to do. And uh, Kiesa beat RDA in the clinch. Therefore, Kiesa would beat <laughs> Colby in the clinch. <laughs> I'm not certain of that, but I don't know. I just, I, I feel the need to, because uh, we're like, oh, the good clinch fighters, the division would, you know, would beat him up. But he is a good clinch fighter. And uh, RDA is a good clinch fighter, and he, he beat him up in that position. So I just uh, I, I don't like to talk about that fight, but it did happen. And RDA clearly isn't totally shot, so it means it means something. Uh, means more than we thought it did when it happened, because we were sad. <laughs> I mean, I think the struggle is more that even if Kiesa can win exchanges against Colby, Colby isn't going to um, gas out in nearly the same pace or concede bad positions the way Neil Magny has. So it's mm-hmm. just going to be like, yeah, he's just going to have to work constantly. And I think that's the kind of fight. Like, Neil Magny, he's pretty good, like, all things considered. But also, like, top control guys have generally been a weakness for him. So, Kiesa could rest on top in a way that he wouldn't be able to against Colby Covington. Yeah. Let's uh, let's go down this card faster than, than the last one. Uh, <laughs> Warley Alves killed the hype of Munir Lazez. He was like the, oh, good strike selection. You know, very, very technical, uh, <laughs> technical kickboxer. <laughs> Uh, and then he just got immediately body kicked to death. Um, so that's a little sad. But, you know, good good for Alves for seeing that that was a thing and uh, hammering that weakness right away. I, not, not like I studied Lozez, but people smarter than me pointed out that he had that opening. Oh, it's uh, Dan Tom. Dan Tom said that. Uh, and I think Warley Alves is training with uh, Pedro Hizzo, and Hizzo uh, has yeah. an eye for that. So that <laughs> happened. And then uh, Ike Villanueva looked... Uh, I'm never talking about that fight. Don't make me. Like he knew how to do stuff. And uh, he knocked out uh, Vinicius Mojea, who is one of the worst fighters in the UFC. You might remember him for trying like five consecutive turning, like spinning back kicks, turning side kicks against uh, a bunch of people. But I think uh, Alonzo Menafield was the time where he just kept doing it, and eventually he got bonked while he was spinning and knocked out. But yeah, he's. I'm gonna say it. He sucks. Um, he's <laughs> the worst. There, there are some fighters in the UFC that suck. Like not, not a lot of them, but like, not even just relative to. UFC fighters, like, relative to pros. Like, they, he just should not be where he is. I don't really understand it. Straight up John Phillips tier. Maybe he's a grappler because his tattoo says jiu-jitsu style and it's two rifles crossing and the rifles are the colors of like, the red and black belt. So maybe he's a grappler and he's just, like, fighting dumb. But I, I, I don't know, man. That guy doesn't look like he wins fights. <laughs> maybe he grapples with guns. That's possible. 
Uh, under that was a. <clears throat> sorry, I have a frog in my throat. I'm gonna make you talk about Chanel Nam after this. Uh, Viviani Arujao and Roxanne Montefiore. That was pretty much chalk because that's probably one of the like top five most athletic women in the division. Arujao is, and then uh, Montefiore. Everyone knows that she's improved <laughs> a lot and, and definitely got a bit of a game going. But just, you know, not even unathletic, but, like, physically uncoordinated a lot of the time. Like, it's it's hard for her to do things physically. And that's, you know, that's a hard thing to overcome. And she tries really hard, and she's smart and nice. Um, but, like, you know, a lot of the time when she's trying to do stuff, you're like, wow, that was one of the worst attempts at doing that I've seen in the UFC in a long time. Uh, like, she saw, shot a single where she uh, took a very long... Uh, long slow penetration step like you learn in the, like your first wrestling class um, and she yeah, reached out her arms real wide and tried to hug at the leg and I was like man that uh that <laughs> but you know her striking actually is a little like I feel like striking you can get away away with a lot more with uh you know bad mechanics and like bad yeah as long as you have good ideas yeah her ideas are better on the feet so you know she just kept kept coming kept pressuring trying to grapple um and uh, Arujao didn't really gas, but, you know, she basically fought the whole fight with a jab and, you know, a couple other tools and, you know, beat her up the whole time. But, yeah, I, I'm not sure what Arujao's ceiling is, but good on her to not lose that fight because there's no way she should have lost it. Uh, I need to drink water. What happened in Chanel Nam? Because that was actually pretty cool, sort of. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Chanel is a fighter that I think we've... Chanel is like has a history of being, like, super chinny, kind of. Uh, where he got bombed in a round and, like, trying to brawl with Alexander Pantosho, which was an awful idea, but, you know, it did happen. He got killed by Rob Font, which isn't as bad as it looks, because, like, he's a whole weight class below, and Font is a hitter even for Bantamweight. So I think the worry with Nam was that, you know, Nam had uh, killed a couple people with, like, singular punches before in his last two fights. So Chanel kind of had to fight this one very carefully, but he did do that. Uh, he did some decent work. So one thing that our friend uh, Tuman and... Uh, Simon pointed out actually was that Chanel would like move his head when nothing was happening but then in the exchanges his head was just like on the center the entire time so like he was just getting hit every time Nam tried to but on the outside it was like oh I'm so slick but I think Chanel fought like a generally decent fight he just won on volume fainted around walked around on the outside without getting trapped uh, put combinations together even when he got hit he was able to kind of cap the exchange off a little bit uh, better I think it was a closer fight than the commentary gave it credit for, but Schnell did eventually kind of figure that right hand out. Like, there was this one part in the middle of the fight where, like, um, Schnell got hit with that right hand off his own jab, and eventually he just, you know, the second time he got hit with it, he just countered with the left hook at the same time, and then he just started getting behind his shoulder a little bit better. Uh, split decision seemed fair, but also Schnell decision seems pretty decent to me. Yeah. So, I want I mean, you to talk all things about considered fun. Murphy and a DSDA as well, because you're, you're a DSDA appreciator. So yeah, I think you you can you can lend good context to this one. Yeah, I mean I don't I remember watching this fight live, but it was kind of uh, I don't remember a ton about it technically. I think Murphy uh, played a very long game against DSDA, which makes sense because DSDA is like very short and linickery. Um, Silva Andrade looks better cardio wise at featherweight than he did at bantamweight, which makes sense because he was kind of he gassed out against Henan Barrow. Uh, but all things considered, Murphy did a nice job drawing DSDA onto his counters, uh, checking the leg kicks, which was one thing, or countering the leg kicks, which is one thing that uh, fighters at his level don't generally have good responses to. DSDA came on strong later. He was able to start countering the kicks of Murphy and uh, swarming him on the inside, but it didn't really work 
because he, uh, you know, lost the first couple rounds on the outside. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a strong showing from Murphy, and I think DSDA is a more valuable win than people give it credit for. Right. Because uh, Peter Jan beat him, beat him down completely. Rob Font kind of beat him down completely. But other than that, uh, it's Subaru Tukugov, who's a weight class up, and he, Silva Andrade really wrecked Chito Vera, like worse than anyone in recent memory, including Jose Aldo. So, yeah, I mean, all things considered, strong performance from Lerone Murphy. I didn't love his defensive ring craft in this fight, actually. Uh, DSDA had some moments where he was able to just run forward and get Murphy on the fence. But considering that Murphy's like five years into his pro career, right. uh, DSDA is a fantastic win to have. And DSDA is a little scary, and he has that like Lineker thing where he'll do a lot of body hooking, and it's pretty wide. So maybe yeah. you're a little scared to you know come off laterally just because you don't want to run into it. But that's true. I, I don't know if that's a real threat, but just playing devil's advocate for you. I mean, it makes uh, sense. <laughs> Yeah, so that, that fight was uh, meaningful, I think. And uh, yeah. Tom Breeze is, is probably a lost cause. Uh, he he is good at doing some things. I, I think that is why people were excited about him in the first place. But he just does not do what... He does not he have the brain. To, ...to win fights. Yeah, like the only thing that Omar Akhmedov really had for him was to top game him. So really, his first goal should have been, don't go to my back. And the first thing he did in the fight was go to his back. Uh, Akhmedov shot on him, and he defended the takedown, and then he pulled guard on the guillotine. And it was a, it was a pretty good guillotine, but why would you do that? <laughs> was your plan to counter his wrestling? Because you looked good enough as a wrestler to stop him from doing that and then stand with him. Like That's clearly the, the right game plan, but I don't know why he did it. I know he, he has uh, anxiety and maybe there's there's a lot of performance anxiety that goes in it and i should talk because i fight or i don't fight but like i compete way dumber than i do in training and i, I definitely don't make things easy for myself so maybe it's a similar situation but that's someone where like yeah you, you're you're good at a decent amount of stuff like he almost hit a calf slicer um like he, he does pretty good work in a lot of positions but he's not good enough to fight dumb and win against people who are better than him in those positions so that was disappointing because i i don't know i thought maybe he could still be something <laughs> yeah i mean it's middleweight so there's a lot of margin but at this point when you're looking worse than 2020 chris weidman it, right. it's tough right yeah but that that was consistent throughout the whole fight just poor decision making um i don't know i don't know maybe it can be fixed i don't want to be too mean to him because he i i really i, I like him that's i wanted yeah. him to win but it's sad uh, Ricky Simone is really coming into his own. He's got his thing going. I talked about it a little bit on the wrestling podcast, but you just like like a new a new Clay Guido. That's what he reminds me of. Just like a better <laughs> version of that. Um, like same general principles, uh, same general strengths, but uh, you know, just bigger, bigger and better. Even though he's a bantamweight, but like wider. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was cool. I don't know if his opponent was good or not, but I, I just liked the general principle. Uh, Sumaderji worse than we thought i mean i didn't really have a ton of expectations for him to start with because he beat um andre sukumtat which is not looking great these days and then he beat uh, malcolm gordon who has the chin of a baby so i mean i didn't really expect a ton adashev got knocked out by was one of those guys who got knocked out by a singular punch from nam so i guess we found out that sumaderji is not a great puncher mm-hmm. but uh like he he dropped him at one point with a, with a uh, a backstepping hook so close enough like clear win it is what it is yeah i was just saying that to uh tick off our boy leon who was uh 
I think he he just stands all like Central Asian and uh, Eastern Asian fighters. I respect it. He has he has a thing for Sumaderji, and I, I don't know he he had he had a rough night there, so maybe I'll give him a break. But yeah, he won. <laughs> he won. Dalcha Lungiambula was mostly just him stronging, stronging Marcus Perez and top gaming him. That wasn't a very good fight. Yeah, I'm gonna be honest. This card started at like nine a.m. and I sleep until like twelve these days, so. I did not watch many of these fights. I watched Ricky Simone and Sumaderji, but Dasha Lungi and Bula is not the kind of thing I'll wake up for in the morning. So. That's fair. I'll run through the rest of them real quick for your for your information. Uh, Fig's little brother fought, or oh, I don't yeah. know what age he is, but Fig's brother fought. He's like looks like Phil, uh, like Fig, but like a darker version. Edgier version. Yeah, like black hair, not dyed hair, and his he's a darker skin tone. Um, Fig said he fights like Izzy, which I thought was really funny, because uh, it just means like he does more outside kicking and like hit faints a little bit. Um, but no, he does not fight like Izzy. He fights like worse Fig, worse, worse, longer Fig. I don't know. He looked fine, but I don't know. I wasn't totally convinced of him, and he doesn't have that like crazy attribute thing that Fig has. I mean, he's clearly yeah. strong and and is athletic, but uh, I wouldn't get your hopes up. <laughs> so soon but yeah he's he's kind of interesting wait until his next fight i think to reserve judgment because jerome rivera was pretty awkward and maybe he's just a tough person to look good against uh interesting fight was mike davis versus mason jones apparently mason jones is actually a pretty decent prospect and people were looking forward to it i think he's a, a judo based guy from like wales or one of those non-england you know great britain countries i don't know my geography that well for that region but uh he he was super tough he was really, really durable, uh, good cardio, uh, but not, not so great striking. Uh, very consistent pressure, but nothing really smart about it. And Mike Davis actually, at first, looked really polished, um, like counters and jabbing and uh, you know, footwork, and everything looked like a, a decent level, like highly competent, like someone you could get pretty excited about. Same with his like, reactive takedowns in his wrestling game. He is a wrestler. Um, he's also kicking the crap out of his leg. And I was like, oh, this is going to be pretty good. And uh, if you remember the Thomas Gifford fight from Mike Davis, he he beat the brakes off of him for three rounds yeah. and didn't get tired of doing it. So we were talking in the chat, like, people were like, oh, when Davis gasses, this is going to be good. I'm like, why would he gas? He didn't gas last time. And then he gassed. Um, <laughs> it's Gifford. And they started talking about on the commentary that he took this fight on super short notice. I was like, oh, oh. I see. So <laughs> that is probably why. Um, and also Mason Jones was pressuring him while while this was happening so it wasn't Gifford who was just kind of standing there getting beat up he was like yeah. making him do things which is tougher but uh, even so when he was gassed Mike Davis kept up a pretty decent performance albeit you know sloppier just because he was tired but Jones didn't really get that much done on him so uh, I, I still think it's not fair to like drop off expectations for him I think he could still be uh, a decent fighter in the division so that's a that's a lightweight uh, so don't don't forget about Mike Davis. Don't don't throw him out because yeah. of that one. Uh, I mean, I guess like yeah. if you start out with Thomas Gifford, there's no way you're gonna end up with a better performance than that in your entire <laughs> UFC career. So yeah, yeah, I think it was. Just, it's like yeah. John Phillips. Yeah, it's the blank canvas of the division. Um, but yeah, one more fight because I didn't watch the first fight at women's flyweight. Uh, but Umar Nurmagomedov made his debut, and I talked about it in the wrestling podcast for that uh, for that event. But he, he looked pretty good. Um, not better on the feet than he used to be. He looked about the same. Uh, very kicky. 
uh, you know, low kicking and like coming off laterally with his kicks and a lot of lead leg kicking and some turning side kicks and some push kicks and things like that. Uh, it's not really connected to his boxing, but he also like has a jab and can rock back from straights. Like, uh, and he makes the same exact face that Khabib makes when they, uh, <laughs> when they rock back to avoid straight punches. It's very funny. Uh, but the thing that makes me interested is he's been really working on his ground game and his wrestling, which was not his base. So it's all been coming over time. So his striking got a little worse um, throughout his pro career, which is why I was fading interest on him. But now I'm a little bit back in it because that strategy paid off for him and he actually is getting pretty good at it. Um, so his reactive double was a thing. And for someone that fights off the back foot a lot i think that's a really great thing to have so like already a superior model than luke rockhold not modeling as in taking <laughs> pictures but modeling as like the base concepts of your game uh better than luke rockhold in that sense an outside kicker that can actually shoot <laughs> when, when they're pressured um he looked pretty good offensively as a wrestler and as a grappler he he did some good work and uh sergey morozov his opponent didn't look too bad either so Keep an eye on Umar. I think he's actually still a prospect worth caring about, uh, despite him not being quite as fun as a striker as he was in the very beginning. But uh, he's he's really coming into his own as like a, a wrestling and grappling threat. That's the event. So Shriram, what's happening this weekend? Uh, I think it's next weekend, actually. February, February 6th. 6th. Oh, we're early. Should we not talk yeah. about it? Let's not talk about it. I mean, we can talk, talk about, about it. Week. Either one. <laughs> it's already been, what, almost an hour? So let's not talk about it. Uh, yeah, that makes we'll sense. Do it next time. That way we'll have something to do for next time. But uh, We've just teased them. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, ha- we have something better. So I'm going to let you start on the answer. I know I've been talking for a while, but let me, let me bring up the question. So we have a Patreon question uh, from Evan Lee. And Evan's been... Uh, it was is relatively new to the discord i think it's been a couple months at this point but he's been really active and asking a lot of questions so we appreciate that uh but yeah evan wants to know how would you recommend a beginner approach and improve their analytical abilities and i think this is probably something that's been discussed on this podcast before just people have asked like about analysis and uh i think dan albert has done something on the topic for his podcast and i think uh iggy has also talked about it a decent amount, but it's it's a fun topic just because like it, it really comes up because there are a lot of people who might see themselves as analysts in our space that maybe aren't. <laughs> like <laughs> what's the difference? Um, so a lot of the conversations been about like who is and is not an analyst, um, which is you know pretty gatekeepy and can yeah be a mean a mean topic. Um, but instead, this is you know how do you how do you how do you become one and how do you get better as one? So um, this is gonna be a lot from personal experience, I think. So sure, um, how how did you do it? Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, I I still don't like. It's weird to call yourself an analyst because it sounds pretentious. Like even my Twitter bio still isn't like analyst for the fight site because like you know, I just write things and people kind of listen to them sometimes. But uh, I actually started out on Reddit, which is historically a very dumb place to start out because everyone is, like, really bad about everything. But there are a couple smart people there. I think it was Ryan and Danny who are the smart ones there, and I just kind of looked at what they did. So it, I think the way to become smart is generally to just, like, be around people who you aren't smart around, which is one thing that... So I know we talk about the various group chats here, 
Like, it's been on this podcast before where we talk about our friends in the group chats, but that's pretty much been the only way that I've learned most of the stuff that I have. And after that, you can just kind of extrapolate, right? Like, someone says something about a specific exchange, you see that again, you're like, oh, that makes sense. This is how it works. And um, I mean, that's it's been a couple of years, and I think I've kind of extrapolated like a system for looking at things, but also you tend to disagree with people who you think are smarter than you, and you're like, oh shit, I'm still dumb, which is probably the best way to feel, because, you know, if, like as soon as you're like, oh, I'm very, very smart, you stop being smart about anything, which is one thing that we've seen with all these people who are like a little bit more prone to us saying they're not analysts, quote unquote. That's not something that I tend to go around saying, because I think if you try to understand fighting, that's kind of what you are. But there are a lot of people who are like, oh, this pocket exchange, there's nothing to break down. Or, you know, I'm very smart about this specific thing because I can label specific things like punch. Like, I think if you're willing to learn from everyone around you, not everyone, if you're willing to learn from the people around you who you select, and those people are the right ones. I think it's just a matter of luck after a certain point. But if you're here, if you listen to the fight site, uh, you've picked the right people. I'll just go with that. <laughs> yeah, just one last thought from me on the topic of yeah, people being analysts or not being analysts. I, I think we should choose our battles, honestly, because at the end of the day, like you said, people who are trying to understand fighting and at least like having a go at, at general analysis, they're way, 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 way further ahead than the people who aren't. <laughs> And also the people who pretend like it's not even important or a thing or like something that you can do or there's no difference between the way they look at fights and the like people who are doing that look at fights. Um, so the first thing you should do is start trying to think like an analyst and the, the thing you do is be critical, which is uh, something that is not always embraced, especially on Twitter, which is you know where we have most of our conversations. Like if you post something negative about a fighter, even it's like, oh, he sucks. Not that, just this this is a problem or this is what let something else work like as a a layman if you're not a professional athlete people are like oh you can't say that you're not one of the athletes so it's it's actually it's hard (laughs) to put yourself out there like that because people are going to come after you um you don't have to be negative you can say here's why this works but ultimately if you're going to do a good job and you're going to say why something works you also have to say what the other person failed to do that allowed it to work because in mma more often than not that's what's happening if it's a little bit of the good idea on one person's side and a little bit of bad ideas on the other person's side and the bad ideas on the good person's side that may, maybe it shouldn't have worked because of whatever and like you just keep going down that rabbit hole so do that um and but you know for people that you know are you having a go at it um don't we're not we're not coming after you at all we're on the same side it's overall way 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 better for the discourse and the sport for more people to be thinking like this i'm just very competitive <laughs> so if you're doing it and I'm doing it and people are saying that you're good at it, I'm like, what about me? Or if they say that you're better at it than me, I'm like, what What about, come on. Like, I feel like I've been at it longer. I've been putting a lot of work in, uh, you know, so I, I get offended because I'm sensitive, but it's just because I'm competitive and uh, that's why. So uh, hopefully that's helpful. But yeah, to answer the question, actually, uh, I, I think um, just relative to other people, I, I consider myself uh, on decent standing as an analyst. I think Sharam is too, even if he doesn't want to admit it. Um, so even if you like have really high standards, you just have to judge relative to everyone else talking about it. I don't think there's anyone other than like Ryan and a lot of the time Danny who were like head and shoulders above me in a lot of discussions. Um, and the way I measure that is like 
things that I notice that they don't notice. If we if we have a disagreement about something, do I have actual evidence that I can put forward? But you know, a lot of the time it's just like, did I watch the fight recently? <laughs> so it's just a lot of note taking at the end of the day. Um, how many details can you memorize? And do you know do you know why they're important? Do you know what's important, what's not important? So the way you get there, I'm not positive, but I'll tell you how I got there. So I started writing about MMA in January 2017 which wasn't that long ago. Um, I guess it's four years ago now, which is an Olympic cycle. (laughs) This is a decent amount of time. But um, yeah, when I started doing that, I had already been watching MMA for about seven years. And I thought I knew a lot because I knew who the fighters were and I knew about most of the stuff that they did. And I knew a lot of the results and I, I knew a lot of stuff, but I didn't know analysis. So the first thing I did was like write a card preview of, uh, it was like Habib, Barboza, and like Holm, and uh, Cyborg, and whatever else was on that one. And uh, it was bad. It was bad. <laughs> it was decently written. It wasn't great writing, but like the analysis wasn't good. I had a bad read on what the fighters did. <laughs> it was either bad reads or like too broad to be good. Uh, so I started like that, and then for a while I didn't write anything else that did analysis, and I tried to be funny instead. And I wrote about, like, cards, and I, like, graded performances just based on, like, fan perspective things. So for a while, I wasn't doing it. And, uh, you know, the more you have to write about the way a fighter fights, like, the more you write about fighters and their fights, the more you're going to accidentally start doing analysis. So I was already kind of doing it, and I was watching a lot of fights, and I was noticing things, and I was contrasting things between the people I was watching, and it kind of snowballed from there. So if you're someone that watches a lot of fights... All you really need to do is just change a couple of things. Like start taking notes of things that you notice that are working or things that aren't working or um, things that you're recognizing as good or bad. Uh, and then just keep keep doing that because you're going to be able to start comparing and contrasting between other performances. Uh, and that should be pretty helpful. So that's how I started. But just like Shuram said, the discourse is really what does it. So like around that time, like when I first started to consider myself doing analysis um i got added to a big group chat of like all the big brain boys <laughs> on mma twitter this is a while ago too so it's a lot it's it's you know a bunch of different people than i talk to now at, at, at the same time but um yeah just having those conversations and like predicting fights and talking about what fighters do and you learn a lot from each other um because at the end of the day not everyone's gonna have watched every fighter and every fight the same amount of times so we're all going to have blind spots and we're all have things that we understand better than other people. Um, especially if you have a niche like me, uh, I try to focus on the wrestling and like the striking that connects to the wrestling and, and things of that nature. So usually when it comes to those discussions, I have a little more to add than, than everyone else. So that, that fills in some gaps, but we're all kind of cheating off each other's homework at the <laughs> end of the day. Like the stuff that you read from us, very, very rarely is that all original thoughts. You know, it's it's a lot of uh, collaboration. And even if it's not like I asked you a question, it's just we've talked about it before. So I remember stuff. We talk about everything live, so there are yeah. no new thoughts. Exactly, exactly. But um, with regard to, like, process for writing the articles, I think writing the articles is what made me better. Um, and continuing to write articles is what continues to allow me to be better. Um, and my process for writing articles is I decide what it's going to be about, and I watch the fights necessary to do that. And 
it, it depends if I'm watching a single fight. I, I get my clips. I just capture all the moments that I think were significant or showed something that I want to talk about. And then I categorize the clips and I organize them and I try to conceptually uh, sort things that way. If it's multiple fights, I record the whole thing and then I make the clips you know, between fights and I group things together that way. And the groupings really help me, like chunking ideas really help with like the conceptual parts of fighting like how a game works and how a process works and things like that um so that really helps me uh but just watching a lot of fights having those conversations being critically minded um and then here is some next steps i would say if you're talking about mma analysts or mma analysis you should watch other sports (laughs) you should really watch other sports um so if you want to write about striking in MMA, you should watch boxing, you should watch kickboxing, you should watch Muay Thai, because you're not going to know what they're supposed to be doing until you see that. Um, you don't know what the ceiling is, you don't know what the ideal is, like the platonic ideal for a lot of these techniques and uh, concepts and approaches. Uh, and Sriram, I think you started watching Muay Thai relatively recently? Somewhat. Years. Yeah, it was like start of quarantine when there were no other fights on for the UFC. So I just uh, watched some Golden Age Muay Thai and got into Virafall and then it kind of fell off. But also it helped a lot because I think a lot of the thing with MMA is that so the reputation that fighting gets is that it's kind of entropic, which is very true. It's like especially with low level fights, there isn't a lot of rhyme or reason to what they do. But with high level fights, there tends to be a lot, even if stuff looks a little bit messier. Mm-hmm. So if you look at fights like, if you look at high-level boxing or uh, Muay Thai fights, there's a lot more of that thread that you can see, even if the fact that they're better at everything means that the weaknesses aren't as evident. Like, for instance, if you watch, like, uh, a Dustin Poirier fight, for instance, it's like, there's a lot of stuff where he's doing, like, oh, he's brawling and he's doing stuff, like, combination punching a lot, and a lot of it doesn't look polished or technical to the person who's, you know, looking for outside straight punching, but then you watch his feet... And you see the good things and the bad things in there. And I think that's probably the advice that I'd give to people, like a very specific piece of advice, is if you understand the footwork, then you're probably going to understand a lot better things in terms of both striking and wrestling. Yeah. Because, you know, the punches are pretty important, but a lot of it just is just based on the position in which they're in. So first things first, are they in a stance and are they facing the other guy? And if both of those things are true, then they're probably in a decent position to be doing things. And if they're not, then that's probably the reason that it's not working. So if you start from there, you'll probably start understanding things a little bit more. Uh, as to like my journey, I guess, uh, I started out on Reddit, as I mentioned, writing a lot of comments that people still hate me for to this day. Um, they weren't awful, but they also weren't the smartest things I've ever written. Uh, but that is how I got in contact with uh, much of the current group that I'm, I'm with right now. Most of TFS staff that I'm relatively close with came from Reddit and talking to them there. So uh, that helped in a roundabout way and also helped in seeing the, the big pitfalls I wrote some stuff for Reddit, and then I went to Fansided, which was uh, fun. And then uh, The Body Lock, which I'm technically still with. They're, they're really nice. Uh, and then I went to TFS, which uh, we created, and then I just started doing the stuff there. I, I honestly still hate reading all of the stuff that I've like just written. Like The article that I just wrote on McGregor Poirier, I'm looking at it right now, and I still kind of hate it. So I think that's one thing that like writing stuff is always kind of tough for me, because I'm like... I'm satisfied at the time and then it's published and it's like, oh my God, this is trash. So it's even worse when it's like from a year ago where I kind of think different things now. And even back then, if I had a good reason to think it, it still feels bad to have thought that way. But yeah, I mean, I think 
that's just a sign that you're improving, I guess. And, uh, you know, just keep at it, I guess. Like, there's, as long as you're, like, trying to think about fights in a normal, sensible way that isn't, uh, you know, this doesn't make sense and I'm just going to accept that it doesn't make sense, you're ahead of most people. That's one thing that Ed already mentioned is that if you're trying to think about fights, you're ahead of people who do not think about fights, and that's most people. So, yeah, just keep at it and uh, talk to other people who you think are smart. That's all I'd say. Yeah, I mean, like, Evan, you're already on our Discord server. <laughs> you're already yeah. doing most of what we want you to do. Um, but I would say, like, the, the secret, the cheat code, like, the thing that really gets you to a place where you can be confident, it's just the, the volume of work. Um, like the, yeah. the time put into it because I mean with MMA Sucka which is where I was first I wrote over over 100 articles within like two years um, I, I did a lot I was writing at least once every week and sometimes two times every week and that is just a lot of you, you can call it tape study whatever you want to call it it's just a lot of watching fights it's a lot of taking notes it's a lot of writing it's a lot of breakdowns um, so just doing a lot of breakdowns you get better at it um, and then for Bloody Elbow I'm like I'm creeping up on 100 articles there as well um, I've written a fair amount of articles for the fight site. I've done a lot of podcasts for the fight site, a lot of commentaries for the fight site. So just the, the sheer amount of practice I've had, like that is, that has to be way more valuable than just like changing my mindset. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's true. You got to change your mindset to start to try to do those things, but you just need the practice, honestly. Um, it's like anything else. You just got to get your 10,000 hours. And I don't think, I don't know if I have yet. I don't know if I'm going to do the math on that, but I, I feel I feel more confident in my takes and my ability to analyze and stuff like that every day, um, and that's why someone like uh, Ryan can always run circles around me because he had that experience first and he's still getting it and also he's smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a training. But he got McGregor Poirier wrong and we got it right. So who's the real winner? He did. Um, I will say the training definitely helps. Um, we didn't mention that yet. Uh, I, I know you've only trained like not a lot for your own and mostly just jujitsu, right? Yeah. But I think um, just having the experience of like figuring out what you're good at and trying to do stuff to people and having it not work and changing it and, and just that experience can be really helpful just so you can start to understand like what's happening at a higher level so you can just imagine uh, you know, the differences and, and the general things still holding up and being true about that. Um also just like being in a lot of gyms and like seeing a lot of people and doing a lot of things i think that it kind of helps you see that some people aren't as high level as you think they are um <laughs> that you've seen fighters who have a similar level of abilities of the guys you're watching on tv and you're like well why is he there and he's not <laughs> you know and so it's like that it kind of raises those questions um and causes you to be more critical um i think coming it from a standpoint of everyone is very skilled and professional and you shouldn't criticize them and they're all perfect beautiful angels it's a very nice thing to do, but it's not going to get you the truest, you know, feedback. It's not going to be the, yeah. the most, most good <laughs> analysis and commentary. Um, you have to be critical. So um, it's unfortunate. Like, I, I'm not going to say that they don't work way harder than we do and deserve everything and a lot more than they get. Um, the MMA fighters are very courageous and like I, I envy them. Uh, but you know, just to, to have the conversations is what we're doing. It's fun, <laughs> and uh, hopefully, uh, I mean Zach Makovsky has talked about it before with us. And Zach Makovsky obviously like came very close to challenging for a title in the UFC, and he's a Bellator champion, and now he's about to challenge for the Brave title. Um, 
he's he's been there and he's been with all the fighters and he's been in the room and all that jazz and he's said before like you guys sometimes you're too harsh like you gotta you gotta chill out uh, like just with the <laughs> rhetoric not like oh there's a problem here but like this guy sucks um stuff like that i think he would agree that um i already forget his name Vinicius mohea i think he would agree that he sucks but uh, yeah when you're talking about guys at a pretty high level like i think you need to recognize that if they're winning a lot you need to talk about why they're winning a lot and it's not just oh their opponent is bad like why is it working and that's hard to do sometimes because relative to other people you find more problems and you want to create that distinction so you know, sometimes we're hyperbolic for that reason but i don't know there's 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 a uh, there's definitely boundaries <laughs> that you don't <laughs> want to push but zach has said like you know you guys are too harsh but also it's good that you're talking about this stuff and overall he appreciates it. And obviously he doesn't hate us because he joined our staff, um, <laughs> talks to us and writes with us. So uh, don't be too afraid because it's going to open up conversations. I, I said something, I, I posted something about Shinobu Ota, uh, the Olympic Greco champion, not tr- champion, but world champion and Olympian uh, in Greco that fought in Ryzen. And uh, Luis Smolka uh, commented on it and we had a little back and forth just about it. And it was, it was fun. So... <laughs> Put this stuff out there because a lot of the fighters who are more analytically minded will get involved and you can make some cool connections. And I don't know, talking to the fighters is also extremely helpful. So you won't find many interviews where they're going to actually get that stuff. We tried to do it in our interviews, but it's tough. Fighters don't always want to talk about it. And I don't know if it's a capability thing or it's just, you know, they don't want to give anything away or they're sick of talking about training. Um, But there's, there's so many avenues. There's so many things that we do, I think, that contribute to increased understanding and we're just gonna have to keep doing it uh to keep getting smarter because uh you know there's so much more to learn (laughs) yeah i mean i think if uh uh, specifically about talking to fighters i think we've had some interviews where like if you ask them about things and i think a lot of fighters they train and their coaches do a lot of the game planning for them and talk about like the things that they should be doing and it's tough to think about things like in a big picture sense when you're doing it, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, I think fighters are very, very smart in terms of the things that they do, but also it's kind of tough to explain. It's like um, it's like tying a tie. It's tough to do it for someone else. So also that's kind of a way to think about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that you said. Uh, yeah, I don't really have much to add. No, that's, uh, that's most of what I have That's pretty much the... Yeah, that's yeah. most of the, the topic. Um, I don't know if you you have this offer extended, but so I'm really bad at reading. So if you send me something to read, I'm gonna hate you for it. <laughs> but I'm too uh, I'm too much of a coward to not do it. So <laughs> if you if you, I don't like confrontation. So if you send me something like, hey, can you check this out? Or like you give me your thoughts on something, or you send me like a clip and like, what do you think is going on here? I'll I'll do I'll do that with you. I'll read it. I'll give you feedback, or I'll tell you my thoughts on something. Um, people do it all the time, and I almost always get back to them. I think. Uh, like recently, a shout out to this this fella named Zach Harkness. We had talked about uh, just like breaking into the the writing space and, and doing all this stuff, and I kind of gave this similar advice. Um, and he sent me a thread that he did on Chandler Hooker, and it was like a really good example of someone that like is definitely going to be a good analyst giving it their first go because none of the observations were wrong. He did a good job. He pointed out a bunch of smart, good things, but he also pointed out everything. So (laughs) I think the gap between getting it 
and being able to talk about it to other people in a way that's like engaging and that they can actually like you know they'll gain some traction or like work in an article format is being able to distinguish between what needs to be said and what doesn't need to be said and that is that is almost entirely personal choice but you can't talk about everything you can't do play-by-play of the whole fight that's that's not really it so that that would be step one and step two step one i would say yeah try try to observe everything and then uh step two is figure out what actually mattered in the long run yeah i think that's kind of the tough thing is that um a lot of the stuff that really matters is stuff that can be contextualized but you also see like random spinning heel kick setups or something and you're like oh that's cool i really want to include that in my article <laughs> but it doesn't fit like oh shit what do i like uh, i remember sanhagen marias where the finish was sanhagen hitting a really slick spinning heel kick and he did one other in the fight and i was really really happy that he did because i wanted to include the spinning heel kick in the article but all the other stuff he did was mostly just boxing and round kicking so it's like okay cool i'm glad that you did that but if you didn't i would like not be able to put that wheel kick in the fight in the article at all and it would suck so yeah i think a lot of like i think you can get away with explaining ev- so with regard to the reading thing one i recommend you go to someone else not because not for my sake but for yours because i think um i'm decent but there are better people on staff two if you're gonna send me something just make sure it's something that you'd read for someone else lengthwise like just you know not something that's like essay length well not something that's like novel length i'll put it that way if you want like a timely response that is so that's the only like requirement quote unquote but yeah i'll, I'll get back to you if you send something to me just uh think about it and send to other people as well for better feedback send it to dan albert he'll read yeah it. that'd be a good idea <laughs> yeah he's super nice and he's very smart so that i did not ask dan option. if i could say that and was punishing him because <laughs> it's a mean prank but I mean, honestly, Dan Albert has more patience to talk to people about basically anything that anyone I've ever met. Uh, and if you're not yeah. friends with him and talking to him and listening to the things he has to say, you should definitely do that because he is a uh, super duper smart and he figured out how to do combat sports analysis really fast, uh, way faster than I did. Uh, there's a lot of people that figured it Same. out way faster than I did. Like Aiden is oh yeah 17, something like that. And he started like last year. It's, I hate it. I hate it. I hate all these new MMA fans that figured out how to have good opinions right away. I had bad opinions for like 10 years. It's bull. It's terrible. I don't know about you, but it's just, oh my god. So some people pick it up faster than others, but also, to be fair, uh, you know, if they jumped on Twitter and immediately found out who the smarter people were and listened to them and figured it out that way, whereas I was always the smartest person in the room talking about MMA, and that was not good for me, so... Uh, definitely uh, if you find people who are calling you stupid uh, it might not be stick them, with them but it might be them <laughs> that's all I got yeah I mean uh, there's not a ton else to say it's a personal very sacred journey <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's been fun it's been fun I'm really glad I'm really glad it happened it's taken us uh, quite a diff- few different places I was just watching fights now I like have a business which is pretty pretty dope yeah. um yeah so uh you can always dm me on twitter my dms are open um i'll talk about anything really uh just be nice and uh shriram probably is not going to extend that offer to you but i am extending it for him because i want him to suffer so there you go yeah i mean that's fine just uh, as i mentioned if it's it, a conversation is always welcome um articles just again make sure it's not really really long but other than that, I'll, I'll still read it if it's really, really long. It'll just take a little bit longer because I'll take, like, very long breaks. So, 
Yeah, the also, offer's open think, like, voluntarily. If you think I'm nice or something and that I'm not going to tell you if it's bad, you're wrong. I will <laughs> tell you if it's bad. Um, I won't say it's bad. I'm like, here are, here are the, what I think could be improved, and it might be a lot of things. So just uh, <laughs> prepare. Prepare yourself. If you're asking for feedback, I will I will give it. Um, yeah. You got anything else to say, Sharon? No, I'm all good. Yeah, me too. Um, okay, cool. So yeah, next week we can talk about the Overeem uh, Volkov card, and uh, if that doesn't take a long time, maybe we'll figure out something else fun to talk about, uh, yeah. like some maybe some lightweight hypotheticals. Maybe we can talk about all the different matchups. And, oh, that's uh, fun. I, I was talking to Dan Albert about that today. Maybe we'll we'll have somebody on like him or somebody else uh, to chat about it. Oh, oh, or nope, throw that out. That's a panel. <laughs> that's good enough for a panel. We should do the yeah. hypotheticals with all the matchups at lightweight. Um, yeah, you're not getting that within within another podcast that's the plan this is how we figure out our ideas live (laughs) live and on air okay i'm shutting it down